With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Staff Sergeant Aquilino Gunnell. Ganell is an immigrant from the Dominican Republic who served in the army in Iraq. He also defended the Capitol on January 6th as a Capitol Police officer. I'm former soldier and a veteran, Sergeant Aquilino Ganell. By the time I left uh, the army, I left from as a staff sergeant, I was in the highest rank. Well, initially I joined to, one, to get away from my dad, and two, to pay uh, my education. But uh, 9-11 changed all that, and I find myself being proud of with the fervor of that time, which was uh, joined, uh, being in the military and go overseas and fight and avenge what happened on on 9-11. I was trained for like three times before ended up ending up on in the unit that I got deployed overseas with. Um, first, they, they needed me for a uh, public affairs unit. Then they transferred me to a uh, maintenance unit, then a supply unit. So I ended up with the uh, another supply unit, uh, quartermaster, the 4 to 4 Quartermaster out of New York, uh, and then uh, children New York. Immediately after that, then uh, I think summer twenty uh, two thousand three, I already knew as a person that works in personnel, I I already knew that we were getting deployed. It was just a matter of time, and I began preparing for those packages uh, for the service members to get all the legal documents and, and affairs in place. Uh, and making phone calls for the immediate people who were needed to be in the unit to to help with the deployment. Then the training that we needed to do, by the time we got deployed, uh, it was in the middle of the winter, snowstorm, very cold weather, training outside the field to go to a desert type of environment. So it didn't make any sense to me, to us and, and to myself. Uh, but we did get the call uh, we got to Kuwait, uh, you know, I think it was February, early February, and we spent about 10 days there prepping to go overseas, to go into Iraq. 
half of my platoon uh, went by convoy, and half of my uh, the other half went by air. I don't know if it was luck or how I ended up in the plane, but the mere fact that initially the plane, the, the C-130, did uh, three maneuvers to evade incoming fire, and it kind of like popped my ears for and leaving me with pain for it. Uh, couple of weeks. I don't know if you ever being exposed to that, but it was very painful. And once I got there, we immediately tried to find a placing within the base. Uh, it was very primitive. We were still burning the uh, human waste with uh, jet fuel and stirring it up and things like that. We didn't have a latrine, so we just, just a hole. And uh, eventually, Things got, began to get built up with the engineers and things like that. So it was, uh, in a way, I, I, I joked around with some of the soldiers by that time. I looked, this is, I mean, you might be homesick, but to me, it's normal because I, I grew up in the Dominican Republic with certain things similar to those things. The only difference was that it, the wording and the language was different. One Spanish, one else. So I'm like, you might be homesick, but it doesn't bother me. It doesn't face me. So I was a little more comfortable than they were. We had uh, a lot of sand fleas and camel spiders that they were kind of people were afraid of, and, and <laughs> duly so. Uh, I mean, those things are huge, and, and they have a. From what I'm told is that they, they eat the, the stomach of the, the camels when, you know, that's why they got the name from. Uh, but it was a lot of fear, a lot of uh, anguish, a lot of uh, uneasiness because we didn't know what, what to expect. Immediately we began to set up the base and run the supply line because that's what we were in charge of. I know initially we didn't uh, volunteer uh, we would not be sent to Iraq to go inside Iraq, but to stay in Kuwait, as I mentioned in the book. Um, but later on, I find out that both uh, my captain and my first sergeant at that time, they advocated for us to go deeper inside the country into Iraq. And because the unit that was already there needed uh, replacement, and I guess we would draw uh, the short stick of the I know I remember when I began the process uh, through the military to become a, a citizen myself, they did the paperwork and even that, that was fucked up because when I actually got to the social security office to prove that, that I, I was uh, to apply for it, uh, as that was the process back then. They told me, oh, your name is misspelled. And both your first name and your last name. So I got to fix two things. I'm like, how can that be? I just submitted it myself and I double checked and, and they fucked it up inside the Social Security or the Army. And when I, by the time I got to Iraq, there were several uh, soldiers that I knew that they were immigrants themselves. They were either from Jamaica, Africa, the Middle East, and Dominican, Caribbean some of them from uh, Central America as well. And these are people who signed up to fight for this country. And I don't even know whether they knew that that was a possibility of them gaining their citizenship. 
I know when I signed up uh, initially uh, to join the military, uh, the recruiter uh, supervisor mentioned to me, well, are you a citizen? And I'm like, no, I'm not. But I mean, I don't know what that means for, for you. And he goes to another room, come back and with the statement at the bottom of my contract says, if I wanted to continue my military service past eight years, I needed to become a U.S. citizen. And to me, that was like, I'm already risking my life for this country. That should be outright given to me. But I didn't, you know, I, I didn't want to get into an argument with him or anybody. So I, I did follow the process. I know when I was in Iraq, I helped because I already had gone through the process. I, somebody mentioned they were trying to re-enlist and that came up. I'm like, okay, how can I help these soldiers? So I went to the battalion commander, I went to the captain and, and, and division uh, commander as well. Uh, just to uh, speed up the process, we ended up doing, at least in my platoon and my company, we did uh, at least uh, 16 to 20 naturalization. We ended up sending some of these people, all soldiers, to Baghdad uh, for them to be sworn in at the U.S. Embassy at that time. And not only did people, uh, officer uh, soldiers from my company, but throughout the base, that word spread out that that could be done at the U.S. Embassy. And that was good. I felt good about doing that. It helped like on uh, all hands, helping all the soldiers become citizens because I couldn't even exercise my voting rights if I was not a citizen, um, if I was not a U.S. citizen. And I got to do that while in Iraq using an absentee ballot. Whether they got back in time to, for the election, I don't know. But at least I exercised my my right at that time. Uh, once I came back from Iraq, I remember getting into an argument with somebody online. With uh, At that time, American Online chat, people were saying, well, they shouldn't have. I'm like, they, uh, because they, they, at that time, there was a topic, you know, about giving the citizenship post uh, uh, after they die, post uh, uh, autonomous. And I'm like, what good is that for the soldier? What is good is that going to be for the family of that person? Because it's not transferable to their family. It's just him or her getting the naturalization after he dies. So his, their family, I asked out. So I felt very strongly that if anything, it should have been given the moment that they go overseas to fight for this country uh, without even any paperwork being requested. So that was uh, something that I that I was advocating at that time. And even now, I still do. So. Even though my MOS said, said admin, I was doing a lot more than admin think. You know, I, I, I was assigned to be the clerk unit. Uh, person. Uh, I was assigned to uh, do guard duty at the guard towers. I was assigned to do uh, uh, guarding the prisoners, enemy combatants coming injured to the hospital. I was um, assigned to retrieve and gather information from injured people from different companies, including my, my, my own, to report back to the battalion commander. So those are things that take, it took time. Uh, it wasn't 
And, and at that time, Delhi may have a lot of phones lines going on, or the bus, the buses that they had at the um, LSA Anaconda, which it took probably like uh, three or four months into it. Everything else was by foot, walking on gravel, awesome, uh, just to gather all that information. And uh, it was hard. It was hard because a lot of people think just because Naimo says, I mean, that's the only thing that I was doing, that I was nice inside a building with AC or anything like that. They didn't even have AC. We were standing on the PX line uh, just to buy Gatorade and M&M's and probably some DVDs at that time just to kill time. Some of the soldiers, they have uh, portable DVD players that we took from here to war just in case we might have a chance to, to have time. But my platoon sergeant and myself, we were on the lap, uh, PS line and uh, two or three soldiers came up in front of us and asked, hey, sergeant, can, can you guys let us go through because we're about to leave in about an hour uh, back redeploying uh, for good to, to the U.S. We completed our, um, our tour and all we want to do is just buy some souvenirs to, to bring to our family. And we obliged. Uh, we let them go through. And, and immediately after that, uh, when they were coming out, they got hit. Uh, and we feel guilty, myself and my mother, uh, platoon sergeant. We still do. Because that could have been us. Uh, they literally took our place. And... and, and we got attacked by motor. Uh, there, there are pictures of, of that attack at that time. I still have some of those pictures with the wall being plastered with uh, trinoid. And uh, some of those soldiers were decapitated, injured really badly in the loss of lives. To this day, uh, I do speak, I'm in touch with, with my platoon sergeant, um, that person, and, and he, Asking him last year about it to remind me about some of the details to talk about that incident. That was hard for him and for me as well. Uh, he broke down. He still has damage. And this is 20 years later. We're still going through, through these things. And he, he has been treated. I've been treated for it. It, it just did. And, and those are things that you never, you will never forget. It wasn't a chance by luck. It was just, you know what? It wasn't our time. But the, the scars and, and, and the injuries are still there. So it's hard to um, to forget. It's hard to move on. Yes, I survived those things. Um, you know, I'm lucky. But it doesn't mean that I'm not traumatized by it. The only thing that they used to do was uh, set up the motors to be fired. Once they put, they set it up and then put a, um, an ice, uh, a brick of ice. And once the ice melts, then that will have fired the, the motor. And by the time that the motor, uh, it fires, that person was long gone from the spot. So even if you uh, redirect fire to the same location where that motor came from, that person would have been gone long and time ago uh, because it would have taken probably like an half an hour for the ice to melt and by that time they were gone. 
I didn't even know that that was the what, what they used to call them until uh, last year when I spoke to a a good, uh, very good friend of mine that I still in, in touch with. He used to be uh, in my platoon, and I asked him, "Do you remember that time?" And he, "Oh yeah, yeah, I remember." Everybody knew him by more than Mike. I'm like, "Oh really? <laughs> Thanks for letting me know." Twenty years later, but you know, it, as funny as as it sounded, it was wasn't funny because. Uh, people were losing their lives and had the potential to lose their lives. Uh, we used to send that QIF, quick reaction team, of course, uh, to those locations. And that's what we usually used to find. Again, you cannot just go to those areas blindly or thinking that they are, it's all clear. So you have to clear the area and then get to the spot. Then Motor Mike used to just drive around, fire rockets, uh, from within the civilian uh, population. And, uh, you know, it, it was hard to catch you. I, mean, I don't even know whether we did or not, uh, to be honest. Uh, all I knew was that they kept fighting at us, different angles, different areas, and that was hard. We used to get a lot of uh, civilians. Uh, they used to call them hajis, uh, which is a derogatory term in my mind, I mean, and I think to a lot of people, I used to call them uh, nationals or local nationals because the way that we're portraying, like, okay, how would you feel if this was done to us here in the U.S.? How do you feel if uh, people uh, that you're supposed to be helping and paying for them for their service, you keep them in the sun all day without no water or food? That's kind of mistreatment. And, you know, I, I guess because I grew up with with that sentiment to look out after other people, maybe that was part of it. But I also knew that doing those things would make them love us more and and, and be more resentful toward our present. And they were. I know that one time that I went to the Abu Ghraib prison, I got there got them supplies, fuel, food, ammo, and uh, letters, care packages from, from the, the loved ones, at least to my, to, to my detachment that we had there. Uh, and once we were leaving, uh, I see outside that the, this soldier from ours threw the bottle of, full of liquid to the kid. And I knew we didn't have no Gatorade because I asked. I looked for a Gatorade. I didn't find nobody Gatorade. And when I confronted him about what did you throw away, was that body water, full of water, or Gatorade? He was like, well, Gatorade. And I'm like, no, we don't. We don't have Gatorade. What did you put in it? Well, I had to piss, and I pissed earlier, and I filled out the body, and I threw it at him. And the kid that was asking for Gatorade. And looking back in the mirror, I, I see the kid puking the piss. Well, how would you feel if somebody did that to you, to your kid? You'd be enraged as well. So you want to do something to avenge that, you know, in a way. This is their country. We should be cognizant uh, of that and, and be respectful uh, to, in a certain way. If you don't need to antagonize the population because that's going to get not only yourself killed, but somebody else, if not. And I don't know, I, I just think that 
Sometimes we do certain things because we think we might be able to get away with those things, those impulses, not knowing or uh, taking into account the consequences of those actions. I did discipline that soldier. I did talk to him, have a counseling uh, session with, with those, that, those two soldiers. And um, I think from that point on, I, I didn't hear anything more from that soldier. And I hope that he learned his lesson. I mean, he I don't know exactly what part of the country he was, but I know he was from the Midwest. He, you know, as you know, they're not too friendly to people like myself or some. And I just want people to know that if, if you demonize the community, the, the population where you're supposed to be working, at some point they're going to fight back uh, and it's not going to be pretty. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, my name is Joe Grogan. And I'm Eric Ulan for DCEKG. DCEKG is all about the how and why of Washington, D.C., what's going on, what's going on behind the headlines. We spend a lot of time talking about health care and economic policy, but frequently delve into trade policy and sometimes national security or whatever's happening on Capitol Hill. Between Joe and I, we have nearly five decades of Washington experience. We put that to work with our guests to explain to you what's going on in Washington. I always found myself calling Eric when I didn't understand what was happening and always found him to be really good at explaining to me some of the things that I wasn't seeing. And I hope our guests will get the same type of insights. And I always found myself talking to Joe when I couldn't believe what I was seeing happening to understand exactly how the heck we got to where we were. Tune in to DCEKG anywhere podcasts or YouTubes are available. You won't regret it. Unfortunately, we didn't know the extent of the plan uh, to attack the Capitol uh, on multiple fronts. And we thought that the, the fighting was going to be concentrated just in the West Front. But I guess we were wrong, given the thousands and thousands of people who decided to take part in into the insurrection and in the fight. It was uh, very... A lot of anxiety, a lot of things was going through my mind. We didn't know exactly what was happening outside. Uh, just yesterday, I was listening to some of the uh, radio communication that was happening around that day. And I could, it put me back exactly at the that moment where I, I, I felt and you could feel in the communication the crescendo uh, urgency of, of the moment when Officer, scream, send everything you got, send all the officers available among those lines. Uh, we, we getting attacked. Uh, so those are the things that remind me of that moment. And that's exactly what I, 
I urge my my fellow uh, police officer and my team to hurry up and uh, redeploy ourselves to a position to help my colleagues uh, that they were being attacked in the West Front. And the reason why I say it was worse than Iraq, even though in Iraq I, I survived explosions and, and, and shooting as well, it's not because I'm alive in that in Iraq and not here. The reason I'm saying it's worse or was worse is because there were things that were happening simultaneously, back to back to back to back. So uh, I, I survived one one what I perceive at that time in, in, in on January 6th, a life-threatening situation to get into another one a couple of minutes later. Then, like, for example, we lost the police line and everybody else is encroaching on our space. We lose the police line. Uh, we are being overwhelmed, overrun. We are tired. We are exhausted. We feel defeated. Not only are we feeling like we are losing our fight, even though we have guns, we can we don't want to antagonize the crowd because there are thousands of, of them and none of them have gone through security. Then people are assaulting you with anything they, they get their hands on it, pepper spray, bear spray, breaking down some metal barriers and using those bear uh, uh, rods to hit you or throw a lance at you or use it as a spear, using the American flag still attached to a, a, a flagpole and using those as bayonets and, and, and injuring you with uh, with those things. And not only were we getting trampled, but we also getting crushed in the tunnel. Uh, then I, I survived uh, getting drag like they did to Michael Fennell, you know, then I, I, I'm getting crushed right next to Hodges in between the mob and the police officer behind me. So I'm literally in, in the middle of it. There are pictures of me just raising my hand, you know, trying to help somebody. But at the same time, I'm, I guess I'm calling for help for myself as well. And, and those are only the first few two hours in moments of, of, of those four and a half plus that I, that I spend there and that on the West front. Uh, so it's hard to not to feel that that way. And when I say it was a struggle to uh, move two feet ahead of us, it was, it was because it was, you had literally had to uh, spend almost 20, 25 minutes just to move up uh, a couple of inches forward and you fighting with these people, and, and they are relentless. They're not listening to any commands that you're giving them. The chemicals that we were deploying to to repel them, that also wasn't deterring them from coming in to the point of uh, even pushing and joining a heat now uh, inside the tunnel. Uh, regardless uh, who was in front of them, they just want to go through. Now that I know his name, he has been convicted, uh, Kyle Fitzsimmons. He's the guy who was pulling me into the crowd. And it didn't matter to him that there were officers telling him to uh, to stop doing whatever he was doing. He joined the fray, uh, not once, but multiple times. And he waited until I was uh, busy trying to help another officer who fell in front of me. And I, was, I came to his rescue. I pulled that officer from the, by the back of his collar 
And when I did that, then Fix Simmons was able to grab my shield and my shoulder strap and kept holding on to it uh, to the point that other riders uh, fell on top of him and he still wouldn't let go. Uh, and he injured my shoulder. At that time, I was like, well, let me try give this guy a hit or two, at least in his hand or arm. And if that doesn't work, then I'm going to transition to, to lead to force. Right immediately when I thought about that, then uh, uh, another officer from the Metropolitan Police came from my right and began to beat him up uh, to the point that he released me. And I was lucky. I was lucky because I could have been dragged just like they did to Michael Fanon. I didn't know him at that time, but he literally took my spot before all that stuff uh, happened. But I already seen what happened to him. Uh, he got dragged back in. Um, you know, unconscious, uh, back into the crowd. I mean, into the police line. We, in my opinion, collectively, but yet individually chose not to, uh, use lethal force. Nobody told us not to. We just knew that if we did that, um, if we did not show, uh, restraint, that we didn't know what would be the outcome. And, and in a way, I think they were waiting for us to use lethal force and we were waiting for them to use lethal force. And that kind of like kept everybody in check in terms of using uh, firearms. Uh, but it wasn't easy. I, I know we were justifiable. Uh, if we were, we were to do that, um, you know, we just didn't know who was armed, uh, but uh, and we knew who that they had armed, but we didn't know who. And you as a police officer, you are, accountable for each round that goes out of your barrel. And if you miss or you hit grandma, whatever, even though you are justifiable, because, you know, there's no way that if there's a fire in a building and you, you say to yourself, well, I feel the heat, but I don't think it's a fire. And then you get to the fire, you get burned. Doesn't, you know, that's on you for being dumb enough to get to the fire. Because um, you could see the fight, there's a fire, and a lot of people saw the fighting inside the tunnel, and yet they decided to join the fire, the fight, and then say, you know what? Oh, I didn't know that there was a fight going on. Uh, you didn't see the the punches, you didn't see the pe- pepper spray, you didn't see the brawl, you didn't see the crowd roaring, you didn't see, you know, or the pepper spray or the weapons or the, the shield be taken away from police officer. So when they go in from the court and say, I didn't know I got caught up in the moment or, uh, you know, those are dumb excuses that they only themselves are saying, telling themselves, trying to make the judge believe them. But again, if there's a fight and you think there's a fight and you hear that there's a fight, most likely it's a fight. And a lot of people decide to join uh, the, 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 the fray, uh, and, and, you know, because it was their intent. Their intent was to breach the Capitol, and it didn't matter whether we were police officers or not. When I joined the military, I knew the danger of risking my life to protect many people in this country. When I raised my hand again to become a police officer, I did that again willingly uh, as a police officer. And there are certain dangers that are inherent within the profession. And I was willing to take it, and I did. And that's what I thought I was doing on January 6th. When I risked my life, I could have just as easily walk away from that door, that entrance, 
I didn't. I stay in on my post. I stay for four hours and a half, battling or more, the mob, both outside in the plaza, on the west front, and inside the tunnel. And then we stay over, um, checking uh, and securing the building throughout the day. I got to the Capitol at 6.10 that day on January 6th. Yeah, I didn't go home until January 7 at 4 a.m. To be back at the Capitol at 8 o'clock and do another 16, 18 hours and did that for three days. You know, when I risked my life, I wasn't thinking about who am I protecting, whether they're Democrat, Republican, independent, gay, straight, religious or non-religious. I was doing it because it was my sworn oath. It was my duty. I kept my oath. I did my job. I did what I was supposed to. I defended the capital. I defended our democracy. I defended my colleagues. I defended my wife's future, my kid's future, and my own. And even if that meant risking my life, I was willing to do that. You know? And now you have people that say nothing happened in the capital. Or let me release this video, this clip, which selectively picks three seconds or three minutes of quietness out of what, how many hours of fighting? Are you talking about the beginning or the end when people are being rushed out and people look like they are having done anything? But what about the fighting on January 7th when I was about to uh, back to the Capitol? My wife, she was upset at me because uh, instead of going to the hospital, I went to work. And I didn't tell her the reason why. But last year, the conversation came up again, and I told her when she asked her, I'm like, do you remember that day? Because uh, you want me to go to the hospital instead of going to work. And I said, no, help me get back to work. At that time, I was not thinking about myself. I was not thinking about my family, my, my I'm sorry, my safety, but uh, my family, their future, and the country's future. And just yesterday, sorry, uh, Saturday, my wife, I was able to become a U.S. citizen as well. Uh, so there goes the irony or the how things works. Uh, back then in January 7, I thought my family would not have a chance if the outcome would be different. And even if that meant putting myself on the line, risking my life again by returning, even with my injuries on January 6, 7, I thought that was protecting them and, and helping secure not only their future, but everybody else as well. That was Staff Sergeant Aquilino Gunnell. To learn more about Gunnell, check out his book, American Shield, or listen to his interview on our other podcast, Burn the Boats. The link is in the show description. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words.
Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.